I'm Carrie Miller. I'm glad to have you listening to my books podcast, where we feature a new interview with an author each week and an interview from the archives that resonates with our contemporary theme. This week, we have an interview with activist, philanthropist, and writer Frederick Joseph about his new book, Patriarchy Blues. We thought it would be interesting to pair Joseph with memoirist Ashley C. Ford, two people who come from daunting childhood experiences in different parts of the country and who have emerged with powerful realizations about gender, race, and class in America. Here's Ashley C. Ford from July of 2021. Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller. It's good to have you listening to NPR News today. Shame, love, humility, grief permeate the letter that opens Ashley C. Ford's exceptional memoir. The words are her father's, written after nearly 20 years of incarceration. I am going to survive prison, he tells her. I'm going to create a beautiful life for myself. I'm going to show you and your brother how much I love you with every breath I take. And when she visits her father in prison, he gives Ms. Ford some poignant advice. When you write about you and me, he says, just tell the truth, your truth. Ashley C. Ford's new memoir is titled Somebody's Daughter, and she joins us this morning from Indianapolis. Ashley, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Writers often get advice like that, write your truth. Um, When a parent says that, when your father said that, what was he giving you permission to do? You know, I'm the kind of person that I, I don't want to give the wrong impression, even if he had not given me permission to write it. Uh, I still would have. Um, it's just the kind of person I am. I'm, I like to do what I'm what I want to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> but what I was looking for or what I've what I've realized I was looking for in that moment was sort of a vote of confidence I wanted to know that he trusted me with my story, that he trusted me as an authoritative voice on my own experience, because up until that point, you know, I I didn't really have that in a parental figure. You know, it's interesting the way you put that. You said you wanted to know that he trusted you with your story. You didn't say, I wanted to know that he trusted me in telling some of his story. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So, so why, why are you thinking about it that way? I'm thinking about it that way because I can't know his story, you know, not really. I can know pieces of it. I can know the parts that other people choose to tell me, you know, including him. But I can never really be inside my dad's head. Like, I can never know his true thoughts, um, nor do I think I would actually want to. Um, that's not actually the point of being in relationship with people. You know, the point is, is trust and, and being able to trust a person to a point and find, finding the boundaries that make sense in that relationship you know, and boundaries, which are, you know, I define as 
the point at which I can love myself and that person at the same time. Um, I wanted that, that connection with my dad, certainly. I wanted somebody to look at me or have this short experience with me and see me and decide that um, I was a person who was allowed to tell the truth. I was a person who they, they trusted to tell the truth because um, when you're a kid who sees a lot, adults don't really like that. Hmm. And they will find a way to punish that in you and, and make you feel like you're wrong for knowing what you saw or what you heard. Boy, there's so much to to talk about in what you've just said, and I'm going to come back to it in just a second. But, you know, when I hear you talking about boundaries, I think inevitably when you're writing your own truth and your own story, those boundaries are porous because you are inevitably going to trespass into the boundaries of of your of, you know, your family's lives, too, of other people's lives. And you probably have to decide how all right, you know, you are with that. You're not going to completely, you know, right? You're not going to completely step over all of those boundaries. But but you are going to move into some of their territory. You have to, to tell this story, right? Yeah. I, I believe deeply in being fair. I think that... When you write human beings, um, it does them a disservice. It does us all a disservice to write human beings as either heroes or villains. <laughs> uh, I don't know any humans who are all good or all bad. I know some good people who have done some bad things to varying degrees. And I know some people who might be called bad people who have done some good things to varying degrees. And I know that we all lie somewhere on that spectrum and that none of us exist in the extreme ends of that spectrum as much as we'd want that to be true, because it would be a lot easier (laughs) to deal with people if you could just decide that they were good or bad um, and know that that meant that they were purely good or purely bad, but that's not the way the world works. So I don't write about people that way. That's not how I want to talk about people, but I do believe that my experience of a person is my story. That is part of my story and part of my truth. And they might want to keep that secret because they don't like the way they behaved or they don't like the way they showed up in that moment. But it's not my responsibility to be silent about somebody else's secret when their secret is my experience. Mm -hmm. That's not my job. (laughs) What you said uh, a few minutes ago about noticing and witnessing. This is something that that I really found startling. I mean, your childhood is full of confusion and seeing your mother's pain and there are threats of cruelty. And you describe this in a way 
that makes it clear you noticed it when it was happening. You gave great consideration to what it was and what it meant. And and you found, years went by and you found the language for it, but there was a kind of understanding about what it was even then. Could, could you, could you, I'm kind of, you know, moving around trying to find a description for this. I'm sure you have a better one. Um, I think, I think that what you're describing is, is just being, um, a really keen observer with a really, really strong empathy, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, an ability to sort of, um, to feel the energy, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, of what was going on around me and realize that it was something to be considered. And it was useful information about how to move forward in my life. Um, But at the same time, being a very small child and only having the logic and rationale of a very small child and trying to make sense of things that, happen, um, but that you are very clear about the fact that you are not supposed to know that it happened. Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to talk about the fact that it happened. And you are certainly not supposed to have feelings about the fact that it happened. Um, I think, I don't think I'm that special. (laughs) Honestly, I don't, I don't think that that's that special for a child. I think that's most children. I think that, yes, I do. I think that it might not all show up in memoirs, Mm. (laughs) but I think uh, a lot of what we think of as just, you know, issues or problems in society um, is a lot of that stuff just showing back up in people. It's, It's how they express it now because they were never taught how to express it in a way that was healthy um, or meaningful or offered them any kind of relief from a kind of pain or suffering, a psychic kind of pain and suffering of self-denial, because that's really what it is. Like it's, it's teaching kids that thing, bad things are going to happen to you um, which is true. Bad things are going to happen. They're going to happen to everybody. Everybody will know pain. Every human being will know pain. Um, but some pain you don't get to talk about and you don't get to feel comforted or soothed. Um, you never get to say that that happened to you, that you saw that, that you experienced that, that you heard it, whatever it was. You don't, you don't get to talk about it. Um, and that's just part of being a person. That's the part of being a good person is that you don't talk about the bad thing that happened to you and you just find a way to deal with it. But for a lot of people, finding a way is showing up, um, in ways that we don't necessarily approve of. Well, and it would be great if we could just deal with that at the root. <laughs> yeah. What I'm thinking about here though is, what you witnessed was and and suffered to some degree was traumatizing and yet as you started to describe this you also used the word empathy i i think i think that is 
Um, I think that's what is why we're having a conversation about this, because you don't think of as a young younger child um, experiencing that kind of trauma, but also being able to process it through the kind of empathy that and, and yes, I know your language got more sophisticated and more adult as you grew up for understanding this. But it's pretty mm-hmm. clear that there were seeds of that, even oh, even yeah. yes, <laughs> right. That's what I think is unusual. But but I think I hear you saying you don't think it is. I don't. I don't because you know when I think back to um, what caused me to have a lot of that empathy or what caused me to feel it in that moment, it was the fact that you know even in moments when my mom. Um, or another adult in a lot of cases was being cruel or unkind to me in some capacity, there was always this point where I saw in their face that they realized that they were messing up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they realized that they weren't doing the right thing and it terrified them. And it also made them like almost out of control in like their need to hold on to like this, this view of themselves in that moment as, as right or as ultimately powerful or the ultimate authority or something like they needed to hold on to that in such a way that I could tell that they were hurting me. You know, obviously I knew that, but I could also see that they were hurting themselves because even when I was a kid, I would look at my mom and I would be thinking in my mind, like, you're not going to be able to take this back. Like, you know, you're not going to be able to take this back. And I was feeling that, I think, partly because I was looking at her face and even as she was saying something or doing something mean or 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 even like verbally abusive or physically abusive, I could see that there was something in her face that was basically saying to me like, oh, my God, I'm not going to be able to take this back. I'm messing this up. I'm ruining it. This might I I reprinted or drew a paragraph from a place in the memoir that you described that that I think would be helpful for listeners. Um, you're you're talking about this fury that would come over your mother and you say, my mother's rage drained the light from her eyes and she became unrecognizable to me. There was mama, the loving mother we knew before whatever sparked her ire, And then there was mother who showed up in her place. What you're saying is this mother that shows up in her place, even in the depths of this, whatever this physical, verbal fury that she visits on you, you see an awareness that she is going to a place that she is, that that is going to leave a mark whether they're physical scars. I mean, she has an awareness of that. And you saw that, you're saying. Yeah, I think that was what 
that was, yes, what gave me empathy for her because I could see in a way that like you don't want to be the person that you're being right now. But it is also what ultimately broke my trust in our relationship. Because what I saw was not necessarily a person who was completely out of control. What I saw was a person who continually came to a fork in a road where they could decide to make a different choice Mm. and each time made the harmful choice Mm. over and over and over and maybe found justification in it in society Mm -hmm. (laughs) and in culture uh, and in tradition. Uh, but instead of questioning uh, the merits of that justification, especially in the face of the real harm that it caused, chose to perpetuate it because she didn't want to do the work to be different, right. to do it differently, and to stand up for herself as a parent who was doing it differently. When I think of the possibility of that, of you even understanding as a as a child that she has a choice, I also think that one of the consequences of that is like this, this as I thought about this kind of constant drumming vigilance. Is this the time she takes the wrong fork and she goes further than she's ever gone before? Mm-hmm. I mean, is that... Is that what you now realize you felt as as a child? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it took me a really long time um, to realize that that's what I felt um, and, and to recognize how that enduring uh, feeling continues to play out in my life. But yeah, absolutely. I thought my mother could lose control in a way that um, neither of us would be able to come back from Mm -hmm. either. And it wasn't because I had ever been, you know, like uh, my mom (laughs) at one point said to me, you know, you act like I knocked you unconscious at some point. And I thought like, is that what it would have taken? Like, Mm -hmm. like, is that what, do I have to be unconscious for it to not be okay? And why does it have to get that far before we try something new, before we try something different? Because this is not working. It's not working for you, not working for me, uh, not working for my siblings. Um, Like, let's keep it a buck as a community. It ain't working for us either. It's not working. Like, people will say, you know, you hit your kids so that they don't end up in jail or so they don't end up being, you know, executed by the state. And those things are happening anyway. (laughs) We beat our kids and it's still happening. So I wish that the the trying something new uh, was like that the barriers to it were more of the real barriers, like time and resources and knowledge and stuff like that. And I wish that the barriers were less um, mindset. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wish that wasn't the case. 
Ashley C. Ford is with us. If you've tuned in and you're listening to the way our conversation is developing, we're talking about her new memoir, Somebody's Daughter, and she's with us today from Indianapolis. Uh, I want to come back for a moment. We're going to talk more about your father, but Justin, in in this part of our discussion, do you is it right to say that you idealized your father, and and that his absence and your relationship with your mother and the way your mother behaved allowed you to project a lot of what you were, you know, missing as a child onto your dad, who was at this point, we should say, as noted in the introduction, incarcerated. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, not even a question. You know, it, my dad being gone spared him uh making mistakes that affected me on a day-to-day basis. My mom was not spared that reality. She had to live it. She had to be there and deal with the consequences because she was the parent who stayed. And I, and I gather that's not unusual. When one parent is absent and the other parent has to, you know, take on and be be everything to that child. This is not an unusual um you know, reaction for the child to have. Did your mother know how much you idealized your father? I think so, yeah. And it was something that she perpetuated in some ways. You know, my mother refused um, and refuses to this day to speak a word against my dad not one ill word. She will not say anything bad about him. She never has, and she never will. Um, that's just the way she rolls. And I think that that was, um, this deep, this deeply kind thing that she gave my brother and I, as we were growing up, um, was that she did not try in any way to, um, negatively affect our perception of our dad. Okay. So that is what I wondered. I mean, do you see that as a gift or you do? I do. Can I tell you um, really quickly, like this really amazing story, yeah. actually, um, that should give you some idea of uh, how my mom uh, sort of created this, this <laughs> lionized this idea of our dad in mm-hmm. our mind in a certain way, or at the very least allowed us to have that. Yeah. Uh, when, when we were very, very young living in an apartment together, um, me, my mom, my brother, and my very, very baby sister. I mean, I don't even think she was walking yet. Um, my mom didn't have to work one Christmas, but she worked at the uh, local jail. And there were some officers who were on duty that night. And it was Christmas Eve and it was snowing and it was like, it was magical, right? We had movies, we like, there's cookies, like it was one of these really (laughs) beautiful Christmases. Uh And uh, there was a knock at the door. We went to the back door and these two officers were standing there and they each had a wrapped present. And earlier that like month, my mom had had my brother and I write down, you know, like three like things that we really wanted for Christmas, just like three special things that we wanted, which we knew there was a chance we wouldn't get, but you know, dream big. Or whatever, mm-hmm. So we did. 
And these wrapped gifts, when the officers gave them to us, we opened them and they were like the number one things we wanted. My brother got this truck he really wanted. I got a fanny pack, a Power Rangers fanny pack with (laughs) the Yellow Ranger right in the middle that I really wanted. And the officers told us that our dad sent us those gifts from prison and that they had delivered them to us from our dad. And that wasn't true. Your mother And that was not that. true. My mom, who had only been working at this place for a few, I would say at this point, probably six months, at, coordinated with these officers that she took the gifts that my brother and I wanted most, wrapped them, and asked them if they would stop by our house on Christmas Eve and tell us that these gifts were from our dad. Like... As much as my mom um, had like the rage and the moments of, uh, of cruelty and violence, she also had these almost divine <laughs> moments of doing something like that to make sure that her kids had this one special Christmas that it felt like they could share it in some way with their father. Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's remarkably generous. Right. So, I mean, so when I talk about not writing people as heroes and villains or, or like this empathy, I don't think that the empathy came all the time from like such strong ability to observe. Like sometimes like the empathy just comes from living in reality (laughs) and accepting the reality that like, yes, I have known great pain from this source in, in this human. But I've also known some of the grandest displays of love and care that I've ever seen. And I have to be able to accept, I have to be strong enough to accept that all of those things exist in one person. Back to our conversation now with Ashley C. Ford about her new memoir, Somebody's Daughter. Um, So, Ashley, let me come back to that question that I posed before we went to news, which is, what if as you and your your brother had, you know, grown into um, your adolescence. Your mother had been had, that story about your father and the idealization had been joined by, you know, some truths and some moderation of of what this what his story was all about. That you'd started to learn some of the truth. Would you think that? Do you think that was necessary? Do you think that would have mattered? I don't really know. You know, I part of me always wonders, like, what if I had been more gently introduced to this news? What if I had been able to process it with someone after I heard it? What if um, it had just been more thoughtful and more well thought out than a simple confession or revelation in the middle of a mall. (laughs) I think that would have been, (laughs) I think that would have been nice. Uh, But I, I mean, there, there's no getting away from the pain of it. I just don't know if I had to suffer with it the Mm. way I did. Mm. I I think that there's, um, I honestly think that it's less important, a little bit less important how I was told um, than the fact that 
after I was told, um, it was pretty much like, and now the conversation is closed. Now we, we never talk about it again. We, we said what happened. We said it. And now that it's said, let's put it in the box again. Um, and nothing about my body wanted that news to go back into a box. I wanted to look it over. I wanted to poke it with a stick. I wanted to figure out what was going on here. Um, and I didn't have room to do that with other people. I, I had to do it by myself in my head at 14. You didn't, you did not know what your father had been incarcerated for. And it, so is it clear that your family made some kind of decision that this is something that they wouldn't tell you or everyone, including your grandmother, who blurts it out, just believed that somewhere along the line you, you'd you heard it, that you knew? I mean, were they concealing it or this was all just miscommunication? I think it was a combination of both. Um by the time I found out, I realized um, pr- pretty quickly within a few years of, of finding out that there were some people who definitely thought we knew. They didn't bring it up, but they thought they just assumed my brother and I knew why our dad was in jail that or in prison mm-hmm. that um, that someone would have told us surely, <laughs> you know, and so they just didn't bring it up because why would they? And then there were others who knew that we didn't know. Um, And upon realizing that we didn't know, we're like, well, I'm not going to be the one to tell them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, that's not my job. That's not my work. Like, I'm I'm not breaking that news. Um, and there's also just the fact that I don't know if anybody else's family is like this, but my family is really good at just not bringing up the stuff that they don't <laughs> want to talk about. Like they're just, oh, yeah. re- they will talk oh, yeah. about anything else under the sun. But if it's something that they just don't want to talk about, you might not know it exists for your whole life. <laughs> Even while priding themselves, this is my family, on being straight talkers. We talk yes. about everything, right? It's like this, this yes. lack of self-awareness about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, I think I was never really able to lie to myself about that. Mm. I was never able to just accept the narrative and live in it as if it was reality because I am who I am. And so I had to go, that's not real (laughs) or that's not what's actually happening. Or "Mm, I don't think that's what's, you know, and I couldn't, I mean, I have tact. I understand context, right place, right time. Um, But a lot of people don't think there's ever a right, right place or a right time to bring up certain things. And I just can't agree. I'm like, how could that be true? So so I think we can agree that the way your grandmother did this was not the right place, probably and not the right time, but will you describe how you learned why your dad was in prison? Yes, I will. Um, my mother and I had 
been arguing about something and my grandmother was supposed to be coming to get me uh, so that we could ride the bus together to the local mall. I was in a bad mood. My mom was in a bad mood, but my mom was very much like, don't talk to your grandma about what we're fighting about. Like, like I don't want you talking to her about me. And so that I could go, I said, fine. And plus, I really didn't want to talk to my grandma about the argument because my grandma is nosy, you know, (laughs) at this time. Um, And when we're at the mall, my grandma starts to kind of lecture me about arguing with my mom um, and tells me that uh, I should be nicer or kinder to my mom because I don't understand everything that she's been through. Um, And then proceeds to tell me why my dad is in prison and that my dad was arrested for raping two women um, and that he confessed and that that's why he's been gone and that's why he will be gone for a really long time. And she told me this in the food court of the mall over Chinese food (laughs) and I was expected not to react. Um, And if I reacted, then it was because I wasn't mature enough to handle the news. So I had to just go numb until (laughs) I could find a safe place to not be numb anymore. I mean, you write of that moment I didn't want my grandmother to decide I couldn't handle what I'd heard, which I wasn't sure I could. Um, As in, I need to know this. I want the burden of this knowledge. I don't want the burden of this knowledge. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's confusing because it's, it's, it's this forbidden knowledge, right? It's like, of course I want to know. Of course, I want to know why the father who loves me so much and thinks I'm the best thing in the world. Yeah, I want to know why he's not here. Mm -hmm. I want to know what he chose over being here with me now. And to know that it was something so heinous, so harmful so violent. I just, um, it changes your perception of what it means to be loved by that person. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you have to decide all over again, what that means to you. And (laughs) that is a, that is a tall climb. That is a, a really, really big hill to climb when, that relationship and the love that you got from that relationship is sort of the foundation of your self-esteem and your belief in your ability to go beyond what you've seen so far. Your grandmother is is such an, a formative and I think fascinating character in your in your life, an influence in your life. She's a devout person 
For a while, she attended an evangelical church where she and other members of the congregation spoke in tongues. And she tells you that it's the way that God taught her to speak to him. I mean, those years that you witnessed that, that you understood what your grandmother's relationship was with God are really formative years. I've been curious, as, as I read the memoir, what remains of that for you into, uh, into adulthood? Yeah. Not much. I mean, I like gospel music. <laughs> uh, never going to give that up. Um, <laughs> and I why love should gospel you? gospel music. You know what I mean? Why should anybody? Right. Um, I love gospel music, and I am not um, without faith in any capacity. I, I don't believe in the the God that I was raised to believe in. Um, can, can you say why? Yeah, because I sat in those pews um, with people who had attended those services beside me or, or with my family for decades and decades and decades and I listened to, you know, who they worshipped and, and, and who they exalted and who they condemned. And then I had to go know those people in real life outside of the church. And none of it ever matched up. <laughs> uh, none of it felt like it was in the pursuit of what was actually being preached um, when I started to read the Bible and when I started to have a, a concept of God and the teachings of Jesus um, as I understood them and as I studied them, uh, it wasn't lining up <laughs> with what was happening uh, and what was being taught between those walls. And I and it wasn't all bad. And, it, you know, the sense of community and camaraderie was lovely. Uh, the music could not be beat. You know, like there's a reason why there's not a lot of black atheists because you ain't taking church from us because it's it's on point. It's too much fun. It's too much fun. And you don't want you don't want to go nowhere. But I had people close to me in my life who I loved who were gay. I knew that I was queer. I knew that a lot of what I would be expected to perform as a member of a church, especially as a woman member of a church, I had no interest in. Um, I, I couldn't sustain it. I knew it, it was one of those things where it's like, why try? Because I know I won't be able to pretend for as long as one would need to pretend in this in the, in in this environment. So I just removed myself from it. I wonder if you ever asked yourself whether. It isn't only that the church has these teachings, but that the church itself also doesn't observe its own teaching. It's not just the yeah yeah the hypocrisy of what the world is and what what church some churches teach, but that the church itself right. doesn't abide by the things that like they home. say they believe. <laughs> yeah, what you yeah, said too much like was, home. Yeah, too much like home. I don't mind rules, but I like rules that make sense. <laughs> and I don't think that I am I am 
so dense that I'm not able to comprehend why most rules are in place. You know, like I get rules that are there for your safety. I get why rules are there for the the maintenance and um, the, also the uh, the continued progress of a culture or a society. Like, yeah, I get that, right? But rules that don't make sense, rules that are rules just because they're rules, just because they always have been, just because we always have, just because somebody said, just because I was told, have never been good enough for me. And so I, I, <laughs> I just don't do well in environments where I'm expected to adhere to rules that um, bear no actual significance. I mean, sometimes it's just cultural, right? You mm-hmm. go into a space where things are different and it's because it's a different culture. It's not your culture. That's okay. I'm okay with that. Um, I just don't, in, in my culture then, <laughs> I'm not following rules that don't make sense to me. I, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to outsource my thinking. Um, but I do want to get along. And I think that both those things can exist at the same time. I want to ask you something that um, that your father asks when you visit him in prison. So at that point, how old were you? and And how long had it been since you'd seen him? Um, it depends on, on the visit. I think the visit you're talking about is when I'm 25. Okay. Um, and at that point it had been almost 13 years since I had seen him. When he sees you, he asks, is my daughter happy? Is that, that's the visit? Yeah. Yeah. That's the one. I just, I, I thought that was... Again, profoundly generous because there's a lot of I've caused, you know, awareness of the pain that he's caused, caused awareness of now your knowledge of why he's there. There's there's humility in that. I mean, just as just as I noted, I think, in the in the letter that you've that he wrote you that you've printed at the beginning of the memoir. So. So what was, how did the conversation follow from that? What did you say? Well, I mean, I told him that I was mostly happy and, but that I had had some hard stuff going on with my family uh, because my mom had just almost died um, at that point. And also, I was not doing great in school. I was trying to figure out what I was doing in school. And I had been there way too long. <laughs> and so I was trying to figure all that out. But when he, I, I wasn't expecting him to ask me that question. But what's interesting about that moment is that when he asked it, I realized that, like, yeah, I guess I am. Like a lot of things aren't going well <laughs> right now, but yeah, I guess I am happy. What do you think you would have said or, I mean, really been able to do if you had said, no, I'm, I'm profoundly unhappy. You're part of the reason for that. You know, there are, there are children that would have brought that into a conversation like that if it was true. What would he have done? What could he do? 
I think he would have just listened to me. What I, what I found with my dad, um, even now, is that he is a, a really good listener. Hmm. And that is his primary interest at this point in his life. Um, he doesn't really want to talk about himself a whole lot. He doesn't want to talk about his experience of prison for 30 years. He didn't want to think about prison, you know, after 30 years, but he really likes listening to other people. And I think because of the amount of time that he spent in prison and the people that he met, um, and encountered along the way, he just has a deep, um, respect for other people's stories and for the fact that people need space to tell their stories and that sometimes they just need people to listen. I don't know that when I was 25, you know, that would have been my dad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know that he would, that he had that understanding of himself um, back then, but I do know that um, that's what he wanted to do. Then he wanted me to talk. And he wanted to listen. And I like to think that even if I had had um, some rougher stuff to say, he still would have listened and and sat there um, as engaged with me as he already had been. You know, I think of that kind of really engaged, generous listening as a superpower. A lot of people don't have it. I sense you do. (laughs) I mean, because of the observation. Yeah, you do. What what, what do I you do. think of that? I think that um, it's a really lovely thing. Um, I think that sometimes people who are not used to being listened to uh, hold on to their connection to you um, in a way that mm-hmm. is that, that, that can be overwhelming. Um, but is often more rewarding than anything else. I'm fascinated by people. I always have been, you know, I, the reason why I think one of the reasons why I saw so much and heard so much was because I was always looking (laughs) and I was always listening. They weren't just things that, you know, I came across. I was curious and I think that that curious part of me is wrapped up in all the best parts of me and all of the ways that I show up in the world that make me proud. So I love it. It got me into trouble a lot as a kid. It'll probably get me into some trouble for the rest of my life. But I love it. I really like who I am. I like that I listen. I like that I'm curious. And I hope people never stop telling me their stories. Okay, I hope that there was going to be time for me to ask you this one last question. And there is. There's a part of the memoir where you write about being surrounded by well-dressed women all of your life, your grandmother, some of the other women in your life. And I think out of that, you've developed this keen sense of fashion and style. So I have about two minutes, but I'd love for you to describe what your fashion sensibility is. That is so fun. I'm so glad you asked me this. <laughs> Good. Um, my, I would say my fashion sensibility is very comfortable, very fun, 
very natural and very dark. So I'm all about reds and, and fun, beautiful patterns in color. I'm all, all about the Gothic and I love natural, comfortable fabrics, linens, cottons, wools, all of that stuff. So basically if you can make me look like, um, a witch slash, uh, <laughs> women's studies professor who went to Spelman College and has some interest in the dark arts. We'll make it work. Oh my gosh, that is such a great answer. A witch and women's studies professor. <laughs> That's me. In comfortable fabric. Oh my gosh. Ashley, thank you so much for the hour. This has just been... Thank you for having me. It's, it's been wonderful to have this time with you. Ashley C. Ford, her new memoir is called Somebody's Daughter, with us this morning from Indianapolis.